Blog Talk Radio. My name is Raina Starr. I am your host. Today with me for the hour is going to be the amazing Heather Green, author, artist, musician that she is, and she has a new book, Lights, Camera, Witchcraft. But before we get to that, Desperate House Witches is not a GPG or even an R-rated show. So if bad language or bodily functions or dirty talk of any kind might offend you, this may not be the show for you, but you know it is. Desperate House Witches is brought to you by... The incredibly wicked one, the amazing Dorothy Morrison. Please check out www.wickedwitchstudios.com. She is currently having her limited edition Halloween sale. Check out the link on her social media. That's www.wickedwitchstudios.com. All right, joining me, as I previously mentioned, is the author of Lights, Camera, Witchcraft, A Critical History of Witches in American Film and Television. With me is author Heather Green. Good morning, Heather. Good morning, Raina. How are you doing today? So great to be here. I am. Thank you. It's so nice to have you back. It's been a minute. So how yes, have you been has. doing during... It has. How have you been doing uh, during the, the pandemic and the the craziness that ensues. <laughs> well, I've been actually very busy um, as an editor and writer. Um, it's, you know, it's that, that had never really ended, thankfully. Um, but it's also been, uh, you know, trying because everybody's at home while I'm trying to edit and write. So there's been, it's been, right. there's been ups and downs, but, um, but I'm here. That's and awesome. My book is That's awesome. Yes, and this book is, okay, so this is not a book for a little light reading. This is a serious, serious study um, about witchcraft in America, and I love how well it's written. This book is so great because you can read this book without having any knowledge of American uh, witchcraft views that are, you know, on celluloid of any kind and come away with a really great working knowledge. You know, you've you've gone through so much of the things I've seen, you know, the movies, the TV. I, I haven't seen Wicked. Have you ever seen Wicked? Uh, yes, I did. I saw it on um, here in Atlanta where I'm based. I saw it at the Fox. It is... Um, brilliant uh, a brilliant absolutely um musical you know and um this they are they are working on a film version of course i'm always skeptical because that's not always uh-huh. a s- successful adaptation but i'm hoping it is uh wicked is brilliant actually it was first a book and i read the book first too so um if if you um if you like or if you like that kind of thing the backstory of the wicked witch um read the yeah. book start, start there okay, okay cool 
That's awesome. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I have family members who are like, this was, so, and they went to Broadway and saw it. Um, and nice. they were like, it's brilliant. And, you know, my one of my aunts is up there, and she's seen it like four times with her, you know, senior citizens theater group. So she gets to go and, and do this, and it's wonderful. But it's one of her favorite, one of her favorite plays. So she loved it. Um, mm-hmm. But I love some of the things that, and you and I were just talking about this before we went on air, you know, depending on when you were born, some of these things were just already there. When I was a kid, uh, uh, Bewitched was a new thing, you know, and I never thought of it as, oh, this woman with supernatural powers. I thought, oh, she's just, you know, it's just another family and and the wife's a little bit special. Because if you're brought up in a family with any kind of – alternate practices like my family, you know, my grandmother and my aunt were really into candle magic and and doing this, that, the other thing. So the idea of wearing flowing robes wasn't really something that was out of the norm for me like an Endora, and my grandmother was really snarky. So it's like you're able to, if things are done in such a way, you can identify with it, even though it's not necessarily part of your everyday world. And I I love how you you go through all of these things that have been around for so long, all of these movies that were out in the 60s and, you know, things were very campy then and then stuff goes into, you know, the 60s and 70s and the satanic panic and, and you know, all of, all of these iterations of things that witchcraft and its different uh, related paths go through as far as the public eye. You know, it's funny, when you talk about the witches of Eastwick, I always thought it was really campy, but I never really thought of them as witches, even though they were doing witchcraft. I seem to have this weird disconnect with certain things that I just don't identify them as being, I don't know, maybe because it's not my version that I relate to of witchcraft, that I I don't connect to it. But it's a weird, it's a weird conglomeration of of different stereotypes, I guess, that they that they promote or promulgate in these movies. Why do you think things like this are so popular? Is it because of the unknown, or is it because it's relatable? Um, you're talking about specifically the the witches of Eastwick um, movies yeah, like that. Yeah, it's really um, popular. Yeah, something like that was so popular. Right. Well, here's the thing with Witches of Eastwick. Witches of Eastwick is sort of, I have a sort of a love-hate relationship with that movie. (laughs) Um, I read the the book way way back, okay? Um, Probably, I don't remember if it was before or after I saw the movie, but um, the book was actually published and was extremely popular in the early part of the 1980s. I can't remember the exact publication date. It was like 81 or... 80 or 82 uh-huh. and it really and it really is John Updike and it had a very much a um, feminist flavor that was coming out of the 1970s that was still very mm-hmm. pre- prevalent in the early 80s right so when they yeah. adapted it they removed that and the I give the example in the book is that when the book starts uh, when, when the witches of Eastwick uh, the book begins the women are witches they're doing a spell already okay So they are naturally witches. They are witches right from the get-go, okay? And so Mm -hmm. um, unlike 
in what you just said about your reaction to the witches of Eastwick is that the movie, they aren't witches. What they are is downtrodden, um, mm-hmm. oppressed women in a small town who were pretty much been um, victimized by society, men, whatever the case may be, whether it's by their job, by a divorce, yep. by a divorce. I think one of them was, um, le- she was left with several kids, um, you know, et cetera. Yep. So, so society and, and men folk had um, oppressed these women and left them out to dry. They were unhappy. So they were not witches, yeah. but they become that. But what, and while there are aspects of this movie that are brilliant, especially some of the performances, the scene in the church, yeah is absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant. Um, but, but if you look at it from a feminist perspective, the feminism that was in the original novel is no longer there because the only way women have power in this movie, the only way they find their own beauty and start to like themselves and rediscover their talents is through, yeah. um, through becoming witches, which means giving into the devil, which is giving into another man. So you see the allegory there. Mm-hmm. So you have yep, this, sure you have do. these women, yeah. The women go. They have a girls' night. They're drinking wine. Yeah. They're eating food, yep. and they all say, "We wish we had. We wish we had a, a, a nice man in our lives." Well, then the devil shows up. Daryl Von Horn, mm-hmm. right? Jack Nicholson. Yep. And so at, it's at yep. that point, it is, it is through, it is through giving in to him and doing what he wants, collectively that they find their power yeah. and their beauty. Their hair gets 1980s huge. They get in pretty clothes. Yeah. They start to have careers. And so it is only uh-huh. through that. And they really don't perform any magic on their own, completely with their, under their own power until late, until they try right. to get rid of him. So yeah. are they witches? My definition, that's up to you to decide, but my definition, right. and I talk about in the beginning of the book, is I let the films decide if they're witches or not. So this film defines them as witches, and it's an important, in the long-lived Western culture trope of women becoming witches through their interaction with the devil. So it works. Yeah, but I dig the what you said about, you know, the feminist angle of it not being cool because all of this power still has to be male related. And that's, you know, and in going back after, you know, this is not your first book, this is your second book. Um, So, you know, and gaining knowledge through reading what you've written, you know, I look back on certain things that I used to enjoy and that's kind of why I go back to Bewitched a little bit because it's what it was one of my favorite things growing up that I used to watch and while it seemed like and I know I'm going to get heat for this because it seemed like while the male was made less than the women his presence was still accepted and encouraged maybe not by the mother but obviously this man had fallen in love with a woman with all of these special powers and it's so much the cliche of you know I love my wife but I hate my mother-in-law and you know I just find (laughs) it very interesting that that theme I mean that theme obviously has been around since year one I'm sure but the fact is, it was the first time that I had personally seen as a kid where the women were stronger than the male characters for the most part. 
I mean, the the male, even the male witches were very, you know, lighthearted, like the Paul Lind character, you know, the Dr. Bombay character, very sweet, very fun. You know, there were no overtones that I remember of it being that dark and heavy or frightening. It was, I think, a very lighthearted approach but I do see the feminist overtones of women, you know, having superior power. And I, I dig that, you know. But obviously, as a six-year-old, I didn't realize it was happening when I was first watching it. This is something, obviously, for later examination. But it, it still remains one of my favorite things because even though Sam had kind of a I love Lucy aspect, you know, oh, what kind of mess are we going to get into today? Um, it was still the women having more of the power than the men. And, and that's exactly true. Cause, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, some, the Bewitched is doing a lot. Um, it, was, it was on one level the simple I love Lucy uh, style comedy where you have, you know, a situational comedy, a funny situation that they need to work through and get out. And it makes it, it's funny. And when you put people that are um, from different cultures, from different um, backgrounds together and them trying to work out how to, how to relate to each other and how to get around each other, that serves for comedy. There's lots of sitcoms that have these kind of um, setups. And, you know, you said, I love Lucy. What are we going to get into now? That's one of them. That's one of the types of comedy mm-hmm. that's coming through in the sitcom. Most certainly but um, but Bewitched is doing more than that. It's fun. It's lighthearted. You picked up on that as a kid, which is the, why Bewitched was so brilliant, because it had layers that lots mm-hmm. of people could enjoy. So you could enjoy it just yep. for its sitcom. But then you have the feminist layer, absolutely, because unlike the Witches of Eastwick that we were just talking about, Samantha's power yeah. is her own. Samantha's magic is intrinsic to her. She is a witch biologically. She's not human. Okay, she is, right. she is um, naturally powerful. And so that, it, and, and this is not only in Bewitched, but throughout Hollywood's history, for better or for worse, um, power, witchcraft, magic is often, more often than not actually, an allegory for a woman's power. Whether that power mm-hmm. has to be repressed or removed in some cases that's what the narrative has us but in this case it's a different message and the message was being sent to women in the 1960s an era where the um, second wave feminism was really taking off um, and it was Mm -hmm. more and more prominent and it was a it was a conversation in society so here you have a woman who is trying to be what I say is a perfect example. She's trying to be June Cleaver. She's trying to be <laughs> human. She's trying to be part of this other culture. And she wants to be that, but she can't. And she, no matter what, she, no matter what si- situation happens, she ends up relying on her magic, either willingly or just because she, she's forced to, and that's the best solution. Mm-hmm. But in the end, Samantha is the center of this world. She is, keep, she is the... Um, What's the word for it? She's the rock that holds the family together, which is often the yes. case, you know, with women. She is also sure. um, she is also the center point of the interaction between the two cultures. So she has a lot going on, and it's it's a different message to women. It's saying, you know, you may want to play this role, but you cannot be something you are not. You cannot be inauthentic. Use your power. 
And that's the message mm-hmm. coming out of Bewitched. But there's another message, another layer too, which I love to talk about, or at least mention, is that think about the 1960s beyond just second wave feminism. You have a lot of cultural movements and conversations, right? So yes. one of them is you have here, you have two families from different cultures, in this case, witch and human, right? Coming together in sure. a marriage and an extended family unit and having to, having to negotiate what that means. Um, so what mm-hmm. this is an allegory for is interrace, interfaith, intercultural, whatever yeah. inter you want to have, you have that happening to, the, to this combination of two types of people coming together to live in harmony and what that looks like. Like you said, Darren falls in love with someone that's not like him, and then they have to make that work. Yeah. Um, so you have yeah. another allegory as well. So Bewitched was working on a number of different levels, and it was purposefully actually the producers talk about how much you can, um, how much you can say and push boundaries within sitcoms that you can't in other types of shows. So, um, yeah, what you, what you picked on is exactly right. Bewitched was very, a, a very important show for its time for many reasons. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I just want to mention, in addition to everything you just mentioned, one of my favorite things about Bewitched was the introduction of the character Serena. Because Serena was like the antithesis of Samantha in that she was not trying to be June Cleaver. She was trying to be anything but. To me, that character is the epitome of the, you know, go-go love and freedom and the free spirit aspect that I think women were also going for because everyone did not want to be June Cleaver, although that was considered an ideal when the show started, that that was the type of woman all women wanted to be. Um, But the Serena character for me was, yeah, there's this other aspect. There's, There's this other way of being with all this freedom and not being attached to a family and not being a man. She was a different kind of woman to celebrate at a time where that type of woman was not celebrated necessarily. Absolutely. And you have Endora doing the same thing. She's providing a similar type. I call her the modern clown witch. That's sort of an archetype that I've created for the book so you can understand the flow. But Serena, interesting thing about Serena is and it fall, this falls into a trope that continues into the 80s and, 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 and beyond, actually, uh, probably into the 90s as well, is that if you notice, yes, Serena is the, the cousin. I, she's a cousin, yes. She's the, um, the cousin, and she is playing off Samantha. She is actually pulling Samantha. She's giving another example. She's part of that family mm-hmm. and where witchcraft is something different than humanity, right? So she's giving that example. But the trope that's interesting with her is that she has dark hair and Samantha has blonde hair. Yeah. And that's yeah. and that's an important trope to recognize because typically in the case of witchcraft representation, good witches usually have light skin and lighter hair and uh um evil witches or bad witches or suspicious witches um, especially satanic yeah. ones often have dark hair, um, it, whether it's simply just dark hair, like in this case, in other cases, it's, um, 
it's you get into um, ethnic and racial issues in, in terms of that representation, right. just the kind of dark, darker look being something that's evil. And I talk about that mm-hmm. in the book extensively. And then, of course, it also goes on to the goth look. You know, that also rep- stands in for yeah. the same thing. It's this, it's this trope in the Hollywood language that, that, that dark, rep- a dark look is dangerous, bad, or some form of not good magic. And then, of course, the, no, that's right. changed. So I will say that they do fix that. That trope gets crushed later on. But even going into mm-hmm. the craft, even going into, into the 90s, you still are seeing that, um, that, that binary there. And so that's, that's another interesting aspect of Bewitched that's maybe not so positive necessarily, but it, it's just what they did. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if the effect would have been the same if Serena had had the same hair color. Maybe it would have been less of a a problematic thing because it would be like, see, they're not so different, even though they have completely different lifestyles or they want completely different things. I, maybe it would have been more helpful um, if they had not put a negative connotation on it because you're right. Um, normally, like Glinda the Good Witch, we, we think of, of uh, Hollywood witches, the blonde ones are, are fair and good and noble and, and, you know, mean no harm. And if you have dark hair, it's like, you know, you have malintent for whatever reason, which is a really unfair way to do it. But I guess um, from a visual perspective, that's what they were working with back then. I don't see where that's changed so much, and, and that, that is a bit uncomfortable. Well, actually, it's very uncomfortable. I wish they would do it differently. There's other ways to get your point across. Well, it's, you it's know. and, you know, it's not – yeah, and, and, you know, you can't – and I'm not going to point the finger at Bewitched. They did so much positive in the show, and, and that's just a trope. And when you're doing a film, you can't rely on all kinds of expectation, uh, lengthy expect, explanations, excuse me, um, in, in teaching, mm-hmm. and so you have to use visual cues. And this is a visual – this visual cue extends well beyond the representation of witchcraft. If you think of, you know, any type of um, the, the meaning behind the blonde or the dark-haired in all of uh, American narratives, it goes – you know, mm-hmm. dark-haired girls usually are the smart ones, whereas blondes are the dumb. You, you have these kind of things going on throughout our culture, and this is just the, one of the ways right. it manifests when it comes to witch representation – and, you know, mm-hmm. if, if Bewitched had done it two blondes, it wouldn't have worked because you wouldn't see the visual distinction and you really needed that. And it's not a problem in and of itself, just isolated to the show at all. It's only, it only yeah. becomes a problem when, it's rep- when it becomes repetitive or, or it starts to oppress or poorly re- represent um, people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in and of itself, it works fine because you have to have the distinction between the two characters. That's the point. Um, you know, that's one of the yeah, points. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but it really isn't only a problem when you start to look at the bigger scope of representation and go, oh, this is, this is a trend, and that's what I do in my book. I'm, I'm looking for those trends and to point them out. The trends. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Which I find really interesting. You know, I had said to you before we went on the air, and I wanted to say this on the air, um, one of the things I love about the way you write and the book itself is that, you don't have to be pagan or a witch to enjoy the book. You don't 
have any kind of, it does not, you do it like a true journalist um, where you are reporting the facts, uh, and I love that. So this book is really for anybody who has a love of celluloid and TV and, you know, trends and the things that, how things have changed. I mean, because it points out all of these interesting things. Because I never noticed, you know, when you're, when you're watching something purely for entertainment, you're not necessarily looking for subliminal or maybe even not so subliminal messages. You're basically watching something for its entertainment factor, and you either enjoy it or you don't. I love how you dive into these things and you point these things out that I was not aware of. Uh, so I, and I love movies and I love TV. I mean, that was, you know, when I was growing up, that was the babysitter. You had the TV and, you know, every Saturday night, my father wanted to go see a movie. So speaking of movies, my all time, okay. So I know we weren't talking about anything that was not American. We're focused on American films. My favorite being the original Wicker Man, but I wanted to ask you your opinion about the remake of The Wicker Man, the one with Nick Cage. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I have not seen it because the Wicker, the original Wicker Man, um, you know what? No, I did not see it. I'm just thinking I'm confusing it with another uh, movie for a second. I don't know why it popped in my head there. But um, I, okay. The Wicker Man, <laughs> the original one, is, is, is British. So I did not include it. Right. I do mention it at that point, and I make that point uh, several times throughout the book. So, and why that is. Mm-hmm. And I did not see the second Wicker Man. If if I had included the Wicker Man, I would have watched the second one, but I didn't watch it. So I don't have an opinion. And I'm I'm guessing from I'm just guessing from reviews, and I've heard from other people. It's it's I've been told you know it's nothing uh, like the original. So. Um, I, it's not on the list close. to watch at some point. Yeah, and, and it's on the yeah. list to watch at some point, but it's, it's not one that I actually reviewed for this book. So I don't have an opinion at okay. the moment. I'll have to get back to you. <laughs> All right, well, I will, I will be very upfront about my opinion of it. I hated it. <laughs> but that's just me. Maybe it's because I'm used to the original. But the first American horror movie which movie really specifically that I ever saw and remains a classic and remains my favorite. And I just watched it again the other night is Rosemary's baby. That is absolutely awesome. First of all, I love that that's your favorite movie because not only is that um, a very prominent and important uh, witchcraft film in terms of history and the scope of witchcraft films. Um, it is also brilliant mm-hmm. cinema. Um, you know, there aren't that mm-hmm. many witchcraft films that you can look at and go, that is not only important in history and important in the representation of witches, witches on screen, but it's also just really good cinema. It's really good. It, the craft is excellent. And so that is actually one of them. I think Carrie would be another example of really amazing witchcraft film Love Carrie. Uh, in all ways. Yes. Yeah, the original Carrie, the original 1976 yeah. film. So, um, Absolutely. And there are a few others. There are a few others. And, you know, not every, like I said, not every popular witch film is this good cinematically. Rosemary's Baby? Yeah. A, yeah. You know, A-Class. Right. Um. 
But I love it because, well, first of all, it reminded me of parts of my family, not in the, you know, <laughs> let's have a baby for Satan. Well, the Ruth Gordon character specifically is very reminiscent of some of my relatives. They were from the old country. They, you know, had more eclectic ways of practicing their beliefs. They, you know, they but they were like your typical you know, old lady next door, like my grandmother. My grandmother used to bet on, on horses and smoke tipperillos in her underwear at the kitchen table with a little beer. I mean, but those <laughs> funky little, but that was her, the, you know, those funky, cranky, fa- familially judgmental folks in your life that love you more than life itself, but they're still going to insult you because it's just their opinion and they think they're helping, you know, like, um, ah, that boy you're seeing, eh, he's all right if there's nothing else around. Shit like that. You know what I mean? (laughs) So that to me is how I identified the Ruth Gordon character. Now I saw Rosemary's baby with my parents when it first came into the theaters, as I also had mentioned to you, my father was too cheap to get babysitters. Um, But I never, I was never afraid of the movie until the the baby at the, the, like they used to show the baby's eyes at the end of the movie. And I don't know why they cut that out. I guess it was too scary um, for folks. I, I seem to remember that in the original release, there was that split second where the baby's eyes looked like Satan's eyes looked like guy's eyes. You know, it was a weird kind of melange for a minute. But I, that was the only part of the movie that really scared me. The singing didn't scare me. The, you know, the the idea of flames and hell didn't really scare me because I never really believed in it. Um, but the weird big, you know, apartment with the frame with the with the pictures missing from the wall i'd seen shit like that so to me it wasn't so weird because i had a weird family um but i found it to be you know kind of like there's a point in the movie where you're guessing are these people really this or are they really something else and i i felt like they had made again the witch is relatable as people that you know in your building or know in your family, you know. So I found it to be interesting, scary, and only in certain spots and certain aspects. But I thought it was such a brilliant piece of cinema. And I've watched, I mean, I watch it all the time. I have copies of it. It's just one of my favorite things of all times. But I, I, I just, you know, I still find it to be really well done. And I don't think there are that many movies that are well done like that. There aren't. There aren't that many, just even outside of witch films, there aren't that many films that can stand the test of time um, as strongly as that movie can. Even though it's very much uh, a piece of its time, you can watch it today and still enjoy it in, 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 a, in, a, really str- in a really strong way. Um, 
unlike mm-hmm. you know a lot of fil- a lot of films are so are so grounded in the period of time they were made it's hard to watch them or they're just you have to get ready okay i'm watching a movie that was made in the 19 whatever so the, the film right. really stands the test of time and you know like you were talking one of the thing you're talking about that stood out is these people um particularly the satanists in this case many and roman and in their whole coven seem like people you would meet in your building or whatever I grew up, grew up in a building just like you uh, in the New York City metro yep. area, and absolutely, these people were people that I could have met, and that was the point. That's what Roman Polanski was yeah. doing. He wanted that, and he creates, that's what actually creates the creepy atmosphere. And you say you weren't scared into a certain moment or a little thing. That's because you were, you were right. missing out, not only because you were young, but you were missing out on that the creep factor is what I like to call it. It's something that um, the newer movie The Witch had, which people expect today when they see a horror movie, they expect a lot more of the thriller, not the thriller, the um, more of the slasher film jump scares and and the intensity of fright. But but that film doesn't work like that. Um, There are only a few moments where you go, you might jump or start, this is more of a right. creep factor horror film, which is similar to The Witch, which creates this environment on the camera through brilliant yes. filmmaking and, uh, and storytelling mm-hmm. that, oh, my goodness, yeah. this evil is lurking everywhere, and we cannot escape it. And that's the creep factor. That's that sinister um, insecurity the film uh, creates in, in the viewer. And so you have that, one of the ways they do this is that, you know, they present these characters as people we can see. You know, similar to yeah. Samantha, someone we can see on the street. Samantha someone that was walking down the street, anybody. But, of course, that was comedy and sitcom, and, and it wasn't real. Witchcraft and that thing wasn't real. Um, in this case, it was presented as something real. You know, the doctor, yeah. the neighbor, um, the husband. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so you wind up with this sense that, this this overarching increasing sense that that evil is everywhere and there's really yeah. nothing you can do about it and and now you have to be sucked in and and you have that of course in the end you know she's horrified by this baby but then she's like well it cries and it's like oh um maybe it's my baby so she starts to get sucked into it and it this was produced in the 19 late 1960s when our yeah. society was struggling, was really off balance, um, boundaries being being pushed, um, reality yeah. was being questioned. We had, a, and so there was a sense. <laughs> if you also think think of this as a period of time when people questioning authority, questioning the powers that be, and um, eventually leading to Watergate, and you had Vietnam, and you had all of the cultural sure. uh, revolutions. So you have this movie that is actually saying that these evils are everywhere around us. And so this is kind of, Absolutely. it was paralleling a tone. Yeah, it was paralleling the tone at the time, the cultural tone, that the, 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 the scariness. It was 1968 it was released. The, the scary, yeah. the uncertainties in society, this is paralleling and expressing that through witchcraft now. Um, he did not. Yeah. It's, it's funny because Roman Polanski and actually the, the screenwriter, they did not mean this to be literal witchcraft and they talk about that um i think the guy who wrote it the guy who actually wrote the book was a, a jewish atheist um yeah he, he did not mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and he did not intend for this to be a literal literal witchcraft. It was, again, allegory um, for this sense of looming, looming fear, this looming uncertainty, this looming evil, whatever, however you define it. Uh-huh. So like what you were saying is you're not sure if, this is, if they're actually practicing or not. Um, they weren't, it wasn't meant to be taken as real when the film came out. It was meant yeah. to be taken as, as more something in, in uh, Mia Farrow's head and of this fear oh. that's lurking around this, this uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't supposed yeah. to be literal. However, of course it was taken as literal and it took off, um, and, you know, it's insanely popular. People really read it as literal, um, literal witchcraft, literal Satanism. So that's an interesting uh, right. little tidbit. See, that's brilliant because I still think now, I don't know if Roman Polanski, um, if his view of it was necessary to convey the fright, because to me, the more possible it is, the more frightening it can be for all the reasons you mentioned earlier about it being people next door or people that you've met in your building or people you can absolutely relate to. That all makes perfect sense because the closer you can put yourself to that evil, the more evil is real, you know, the more likely something could potentially happen. So I totally dig that. I'm wondering if they had, if he hadn't done the film in such a way to make it um, obvious at points in the film that, yes, in fact, these are people who do practice witchcraft to that extent. Um, I wonder if the film would still not have been fantastic, even if it wound up actually being all in her head anyway what do you think um i i think you know with a director like that and writing and storytelling like that it would have been fantastic probably anyway they did it um but i think Mm -hmm. that the i think that the more uh the, the larger point the larger theory or not theory the larger thesis of the film let's say for um would would not be there because if they had if they made it all in her head um you would have wound up with that Wizard of Oz thing. Was it a dream? Was it not a dream? And it would have weakened the concept of, uh, that w- would have weakened the thesis and the power because one of the things this film does is leave uncertainty and dread in the v- mind of the viewer even after they, they leave the theater. So after, yeah. you leave the th- after you leave the theater, you still are like becoming paranoid. Like anyone can be this evil, whatever the evil stands for. And that could, that, like I said, it could be literally Satanism and witchcraft as, or it, it was actually a stand-in for other types of evil. Um, however you define that, you leave the theater because it's, because it's not over. You know, when the, when the credits it's roll, not, right. evil has not been yeah. vanquished. <laughs> right. And you're sucked in. Right. So are you being sucked into the evils of society? Is it, is it the man? Is it, um, you know, government control, is it whatever the case may be, whatever, however you define that evil. And that was Polanski, um, Polanski's point, and that was the, you know, writer's point, is that there is this lurking yes. evil in our society, it's, and you're going to get sucked in. And that's the fear, and that's the, that's the dread, and that's the paranoia the film leaves you with. So if they had wrapped it up neatly in a bow and said, oh, it was all a dream, it wouldn't have had right. the same meaning. And I understand that, but what I'm saying is if you had left all of the same things unanswered, like at the end with 
you know, is this baby actually guys or is it actually Satan? And just let the questions keep going as opposed to trying to resolve them. I think it could have continued as, as to, to give similar um, feelings that you've just expressed that happen when you leave the theater because even though they tried to come up with sequels for the movie, and I, I will be honest with you, I tried to watch one of the sequels, and it was so bad I had to stop. I just I, I couldn't <laughs> go there. But the the idea that you are still wondering, did she join them? Did the kid grow up in such a way to overthrow? And I know that there was such a need to to have answers to that that I think they came up with at least another two films after it. Excuse me, but they were not nearly the same quality. And as I said, the one I tried to watch, and I can't remember which of the the two or three it was, but it was, for me, purely unwatchable. Um, But, yeah, the idea that you could meet Rosemary Woodhouse in a library, in the supermarket, on on the subway, especially on the subway. <laughs> I wonder sometimes, <laughs> have I met her? It's possible. Um, but I wanted to ask you something apropos of nothing having to do with this film. Do you think because of the subsequent issues Roman Polanski had with the law um, and pedophilia and the other things that – he was accused of and the other, you know, the whole Sharon Tate thing, which some folks forget his wife was murdered after this movie was released. So it was not influenced by it. Um, You know, I just find his whole history very interesting. And do you think anybody views the movie differently in retrospect because of what he's gone through and the things he's done? Um, uh, well, yeah, and, and, you know, I'm not going to comment, I'm not commenting on, you know, a lot of what his accusations are, because I don't know all of his personal background, but in terms of the Sharon Tate thing, and in terms of that, the actual um, film, um, a lot of people, the conspiracy theories and all that good stuff, believe it Mm -hmm. was the, the cast and crew were actually, um, Text or jinxed or or there was some kind of thing oh, wow. going on there um, because and I you know I have to um, this is this is a question that that nobody's asked before so I don't have the facts in my head and so I'd have to flip over to that chapter and I can do that really quickly but um, basically I'm trying to remember the exact um, the data but it was uh, the film there was a number of things that happened to crew and cast right after the film was done and that included Sharon Tate, that murder. It included, I think um, there was a cast member who lost their job and never worked again. There was a number of um, incidences right after the film was, was um, I guess stop production. I'm thinking, I don't know if it was after release or after stop production that negative things that happened to a lot of the people that were involved. Mm -hmm. And so there was this, there was this new sort of modern mythology, if you will, um, around the film, um, especially yeah. given the fact that it's about Satanism in a time when the occult and all of these type of esoteric conversations were being had more prominently within Hollywood as well as outside of Hollywood. Um, so you have these layers built upon it, ripe for creating a 
a conspiracy theory around the film that the film was actually, whether it was hexed or or uh, Satan hexed it, or I, I don't even know the number of different <laughs> right. stories that have come out of it. Right. But the Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski, um, the Roman Polanski story with Sharon Tate was most certainly wrapped up yeah. into all of that. So yes, his life and the life of several of the crew members directly affected the view of the film. But I want to I want to say one thing about your point earlier about later versions of this movie not being not being as good. That's pretty typical um, of films yeah. in general. But when you have a director like Roman Polanski, particularly, there is very it's very hard to match that artistry. So when you have a director that's so so good, you can't match that. And is and not only that, but the film was made at a point in time that's very pertinent and powerful to it that backs it. So you you really can't yeah. replicate that when socio when our, our society has moved on from that particular issue, or you can't match that with a different director. Even another good director can't replicate what Roman Polanski can do. It's a different artist. So you know you're going to have yeah, you can't go in thinking you know. And also, the film built itself around the ambiguity, like we were talking about. Yes. It built itself around that ambiguity. And if you try to explain that, it detracts. You know, I don't want to know. That's, you're ruining the first film. We're not supposed to know. <laughs> That's what makes it so good. Yeah. Um, and I, I, so, yeah. I resent a little. Well, not, I don't resent it. I shouldn't say that. That's not an accurate word. But I, I think that the the movie stands beautifully on its own and should just continue to stand on its own. Some things are, I don't understand. Some things should not be attempted to be improved upon. Some things just are what they are, and they stand in a moment of time, and they either survive time as it continues or they are just of its day. And this is one of those movies where, you know, because the people are so, again, so normal. And the other thing about Rosemary's Baby is not only the fact that the people could be your next-door neighbors, it showed to me, which is on a much higher level, a much more upscale, the, the witches in this movie are not downtrodden. They are not um, oppressed. Uh, if any, if they may be quiet about it publicly, but they have large groups. They have lots and lots of money. They're very well-to-do. And for me, it was a, a completely different – in retrospect, it's a completely different way of going at what you think a witch is. That's absolutely true, and that's a very good point because they are. They are not – and that's another important aspect. Not only are they supposed to look like people you might you might see on the street, they're also supposed to look, um, you know, just like average Americans. Regardless, they're supposed to be, um, you know, affluent. They have affluence where where you don't. They're what they are is something you don't expect witches to be. Which is why it's such right. a shocking and slow, gradual realization for you as the viewer and for um, for Rosemary. Oh my goodness! What is go- this? Yeah. Is not normal, even though they look normal. And so you have that, and that's a really interesting point too, because a lot of the witches in this period of time are not downtrodden, oppressed, and that's for the same reason. Yeah. Whereas a lot of witches more recently, or even older witches, usually see the witch in the woods, or you see uh-huh. a witch's victim. You know, whether she's a ghost or real, you see the witch as a, vi- a victim, and the only reason she uses magic is to get back 
or to because she's been oppressed, because she's been victimized. So you have all of that. These witches are not like that. They're choosing to be Satanists purposefully, choosing to have power. You also have male witches here, the whole coven. And they're just like doctors, lawyers, you know, they're (laughs) grandmas, aunts. So, yeah, it's a totally different characterization. Yeah, the norm. Exactly. And that's something I love when I see it. And I don't see it often. The normalization of people who practice something other than the Judeo-Christian faith when they normalize or, or can at least be accepted as a normal member of society. I love that. I'm not a fan of stereotypical witches. I'm not a fan of the black hat all the time. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the black hat at all. Um, but every day isn't Halloween. You know, we're either going to normalize uh, this method of, of religion or we're not. You know what I mean? So to, for me to see, you know, many with the same hats one of my aunts used to wear or, you know, they're knitting. Everybody's not standing around a cauldron every five minutes or mixing potions or, you know, she's, she has herbs in the house. Lots of people grow herbs in their house. You know what I mean? So it's it's normalizing. It's comforting in a way, you know, if it's something that you relate to in that manner. Now, I understand if it's not something you're into, it could be very frightening because, again, the closer it is to being someone you'd see every day, the more frightening that can become. But I love the attempt to normalize the way people in that uh, belief system walk right and that and that is a um uh, that is something that film does Bewitched does it um and in different films and tv shows will normalize some aspect of the representation of witchcraft and witches in this case it's the representation of what the witches look like so that's just their appearance mm-hmm. because their practice is not normal their practice is evil it's defined as evil within the film so that's not exactly right. normalized. And then you go, you flash forward to a film like um, Practical Magic, which normalizes. Mm-hmm. That's, that's heavily normalizes for the 1990s. Um, and right. that was 1998, I believe. Um, that film normalizes the entire um, family and normalizes witchcraft as a practice as well. And a lot of that was going on in the late 1990s, even within the fantasy. But Practical Magic, that was its, one of its purposes. Um, it's one of, it's yeah. one of the threads that, roll, that rolls through, the themes that rolls through. Is This is all normal. She's, she's a PTA president. She goes to classes. She yep. raises kids. She has yep. aunts. And now <laughs> there's a little bit of fun around it. There's an art um, and a uh, eclecticism to their, to their yes. lives. Of course, Midnight Margaritas. Um, but it's not yes. so far off reality for the practicing witch, someone who might be out there saying, hey, I, I recognize these people, or just for the general population, they normalized it. But here's the thing, here's the, right. here's the flip side of that, which I talk in the book, is that what I call whitewashing witchcraft or defanging witchcraft, because there's an mm-hmm. element to witchcraft that has traditionally been rebellious, that has traditionally yes. pushed against the status quo. So when you take magic and which which culture let's say let's call it that um and then put it into a generic um american society the way they did in this thing um in this movie you almost 
does it does is it still witchcraft you know is it still it is but it's it's different it loses its it, that rebellious um uh, streak that has been part of uh the culture from the beginning so mm-hmm. i discuss i discuss that and i don't i don't know that it's bad or good because you know in some ways it's good it's had a really positive um effects on the representation of witches in television and film, right? So you, it's, it's good because right. it's good for modern witches to have, for, for right. people to see that, you know, we're all out there washing our clothes, going to class meetings, <laughs> um, shopping at the store. We're doing it. We're not very exciting, right? But um, so, right. so it's good in that way. It's good in that way. But there's an aspect, yeah. there's, a, there's, an, uh, there's a strong aspect in line in witchcraft, in the practice of it or magic, however you define it, if you don't use the term witchcraft, that has that rebellious spirit. And so that's taken away in this because it's no longer rebellious if it fits in, right? So, so you have to sort of, I think, individually as witches, now I'm speaking specifically to people who practice, have to right. make that decision for themselves, which, which, which one, you know, whether that's a problem or not. That's, that's a, a personal decision in my opinion. So I, don't make, I, don't, I won't call right. that for other people, but, but you see... But, but yes, the normalization of the practice is, has had positive effects. Um, and, and Hollywood yeah. doesn't relinquish, doesn't relinquish right. the negative representations, but it adds those on. So you get a combination of all kinds of things. But you have things like Sabrina, you have things like um, Practical Magic, and then you have shows into sure. the 90s and to the 2000s that start to talk about witchcraft as a religion and start to delineate that. So you have a lot of really positive and into the 2010s even more recently um you have representations of hoodoo and voodoo that are positive that are just like normal people walking down the street so yeah it it increases and increases uh exponentially actually yeah and you can't really expect one particular movie at any time to do a full board every aspect thereof so as long as Hollywood keeps creating different viewpoints of witchcraft as opposed to all witches are bad um, or all witches are Satanists or evil, however you want to characterize it. If you keep showing different aspects of witchcraft, which is why Practical Magic, I, I love it. It's not my favorite, but I love it. Um, again, Rosemary's Baby will always be my favorite witchcraft movie, <laughs> as it were. It just is. It's from childhood. It, there's a lot emotionally attached to that movie for me personally, because it was, you know, I went with my parents. It was something we all enjoyed, fill in the blank, as before my parents became hard, hard, hardcore Christian. But that's that's another story for another time. But the fact is, is that, as long as Hollywood continues to give different representations. And I mean, a lot, listen, True Blood was a fun show. It got beaten up on a lot towards the end because it did veer pretty hard away from the intention of the books, like in a crazy way. Um, But it showed different people doing different things. It didn't stick to just one type type of witchcraft, you know. There was hoodoo and, and, you know, a little, I don't even remember if there was any Satanism in it at all, but there were goddesses and there was this and there were, you know, that and there, you know, and it wasn't done perfectly, but it was just another set of displays of other 
types of pagan religion, which I like. I like having a variety. I don't expect one movie or one show to cure the ills thereof, but as long as Hollywood keeps producing and showing different aspects, I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I agree completely, and, and, and that's what we're seeing more recently in the last 10 years, and is breaking mm-hmm. of, it, it went to a binary representation and understanding back in the 90s. There was good witchcraft and bad watch, witchcraft, and that was after mm-hmm. a number of other iterations, which, um, you know, that's, that's a longer story. You can read that in my book, but then yep. more recently, we wind up with the breaking, breaking down further, not only in the types of witchcraft, it's not, it's, it's, you've got all kinds, you know, and, and you, we talk about it as religion, as craft. You talk about folk practices. You talk about hoodoo, voodoo. There's so many different types of magic, um, specifically yep. witchcraft being portrayed in a positive light or at least in a, a workable light, a recognizable light, as well as types of witches as well. So, and that's reflective of really what's going on in the um, – magical community as a whole in the witchcraft community pagan community you're seeing that you've been seeing that for 10 or 15 years now where people are going wait i can do more than just wicca because that was the one most people only heard of for a very long time and so you're seeing that now with all types of different paganisms and um, heathenry and forms of witchcraft and folk practices it's actually so thing and so um delightful honestly because i love I love, I'm fascinated by all things yeah. uh, witchcraft and religion and wh- what people believe and how they do it. Absolutely fascinating. And that's being reflected in the films as we search for who we are and as, as practitioners search for who they are. So it's, it's really, it, it is nice to see Motherland. I don't know if you see Motherland. There's, that's all goddess worship, not. matriarchal. Oh. Yeah, well, cool. it's, it's an interesting show. It's an interesting show, definitely. Um, I haven't started the second season, but definitely uh, check it out because it's a different, it's a very different look, again, at witchcraft presented in a different way. That's wonderful. So before we go, because we're getting, we're getting kind of down to time here, I want to know your recommends on movies, your, your top three, and TV shows, if you have a top three. What are your favorites? My favorite witch film, which I always tell people is The Wizard of Oz, again, kind of like you, it's uh, partly just nostalgia, my, you know, growing up, watching it every year, my childhood. So I love that film. And it's so pertinent to the study, too. So that's number one. Um, I I absolutely love Carrie as a horror film. Um, And I would say Bell Book (laughs) and Candle, um, because I'm, I'm, I'm a lover of classic uh, films in, in old Hollywood. So yeah. I can't, you know, I just, that's just, you know, Jimmy Stewart, my goodness, this is such a great film. So um, yeah. Jack Lemon is fantastic. Definitely my three top, top three of the ones that I enjoy, but I recommend people find yeah. their own because, you know, it's go, go watch them all, go watch as many as you can and enjoy them. Um, and just because it's a, just because the film isn't top rated, um, a plus uh, cinema doesn't mean you're not going to love it. We can all have our guilty pleasures and watch the bad ones too and love them. Um, so true. My top three Very television. True. Television yeah. would probably be definitely Bewitched. Um, so mm-hmm. much fun. Um, yeah. I would say I did enjoy Buffy the Vampire Slayer when it was on. Um, there is a witch in there with cool. um, Willow. So I'll add yeah. that to the to the mix there and and also um game of thrones and i'm going to mention that's not a witch 
television show per se, but Melisandre is such an interesting character. So I will oh, add yeah. that to my that's it's hard because with television the witches are sort of often embedded into a bigger um narrative. Um but I think for yeah. which shows where a witch dominates, bewitched would be the you have you just that's just a must must watch television. <laughs> But yeah, and and Melisandre is in your book, which I loved. Um, So I have to say, this book is incredible, and you don't have to be a witch. You don't have to uh, find a witch person to give it to as a gift. Anybody who loves the horror genre or the witch genre in American films and TV who just wants a really deep, comprehensive dive into um, all of it. This book is just fantastic. It's called Lights, Camera, Witchcraft, A Critical History of Witches in American Film and Television. It's a great book. You don't have to have any certain kind of belief to love this book. It's that good. Um, so, Heather, before we go, tell us where we can find you, and if you're if you're having anything public come up in the future where folks can say hello um, yeah, so uh, you can find me on Twitter, um, MiraSelina01. Um, you can find me on Facebook. I've got a page uh, there, an author page. Instagram, Heather Green Wright. My website uh, is heathergreen.net. Um, if you put .com, you'll find the other author named Heather Green who specializes in whiskey. That's a different conversation. Um, so <laughs> heathergreen.net. And um, Next, on there, yes. you can find a list of appearances where I'm, where I'm going to be, where I've uh, done other podcasts. Um, and if you're in Atlanta, I am going to be at the Phoenix and the Dragon. I believe it's next Saturday night live, um, talking about how the occult has actually directly affected witchcraft films, which is always a fascinating topic. Um, yep. I will also be at Sacred Space in January, Mystic South in the summer. So I'll be doing July. <laughs> Yes, July, so I'll be in some some other places, but you you can always check out if you're curious. My website will always be updated. I do it weekly um, with stuff coming up. There's some other um, online and podcasty stuff that's coming up more, more, uh, you know, over October and November and January. So you can check that out as well as um, where to find me. All my socials are there as well. Fantastic. Heather, thank you so much for for taking time out of your Saturday to spend it with me. I really appreciate it. I loved it. I always love talking to you. Um, You always make things fun (laughs) here on Desperate House Witches. (laughs) I appreciate that. All right. I will talk to you soon. Have a wonderful week and weekend, and I will catch up with you in the very, very near future. Take care. Have fun. Thank you again. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, guys. That's it for this week. I will be back next week. Two more shows. I can't even remember who's on. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. Get your vaccination if you can. Wear your mask. Wash your hands. You know what to do. All right, guys. Love you. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.